Brothers and sisters, privileged to be with you to bring God's word. Standing in the place of Ezra, when he opened the book, the book of the law, the people stood. We open God's word. I invite you to stand and hear the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. Reading from the ESV English Standard Version. Hear the word of our God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of God, Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended as far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of mercy, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the, to the, measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let us pray. Mighty God and Heavenly Father, we are before your word, but you are the living word. You are the truth. We pray, Almighty God, that you would indeed ordain your servant to speak the word of truth, to speak it in love, and that you would also ordain it by your spirit in our hearts to hear the word, to feed our faith, a faith active in love. Bless us, Almighty God, by the gift of your spirit, our teacher. Amen. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ gives to the church pastors and teachers. The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, the victorious Lord Jesus Christ gives to the church, his body, pastors and teachers. And why? Well, the answer is quite obvious, so that they might teach, so that they might teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might teach sound doctrine to God's people. We of the Reformed Presbyterian tradition know and understand the importance of sound teaching in the church, of preaching, teaching, catechizing, of doing theology. But theology divides, people tell us. Theology divides. Teaching causes schisms. What we need is love. And don't talk to us about doctrine and even less dogma. But why does Christ give pastors and teachers? 
Why does the risen Christ give pastors and teachers to his church? So that they might teach us to love one another. So that they might teach us the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we might love one another. So that they might teach us the gospel of the truth of God, the truth of God's love for us in Christ. So that we might love one another. That they might teach lovingly the gospel of God's love for us in Christ. So that we might truly love one another. Brothers and sisters, I'd like to look at the text as before us, consider a few lessons from here. I won't do a full exposition of the text, but rather highlight a couple lessons for us today. First of all, the body being built up in love. Second of being built through the teaching of the word. Of a teaching or speaking which is done in love, it's the third lesson. And therefore to receive from Christ the gift of pastors and teachers. I'm going to begin with this text by looking at the very last phrase, the last words that we have, that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Pastors and teachers are given, shepherds and teachers are given, verse 12 tells us, so that they would build up the body of Christ. And this building should result, verse 16 says, in the body grows that it's built itself up in love. Now you would be right to say that the body, the teaching is given so that the body, the church would grow up in Christ. Verse 13 talks about the need to grow in the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, that we would grow in every way who is the head, Christ. It's a text that speaks about our union with Christ. We belong to Christ and we want to grow in Christ. But our union with Christ is invisible. What's visible is our love for one another. We need to remember these words of the Apostle John in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 12. He reminds us that no one has seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us if we love one another. And so the spiritual goal of growing in union with Christ has a practical goal of loving one another. That the body would grow and so that it builds itself up in love. Love for whom? Love for myself? No, the Bible never teaches us explicitly that we are called to love ourselves. The Bible assumes that we love ourselves and often very selfishly. You, the children, you know very well who we need to love. You remember the Bible, the words of Jesus, to love God above all and our neighbor as ourself. We're called to love God who has loved us and adopted us as his covenant people. But we're also called to love our neighbor. And in the context of this passage, to love our neighbor who is our brother and sister in Christ. To love the members and members and friends of this congregation. To love all the brothers and sisters in Christ. We're also called to love our enemies, as you may recall the text. To love those who are outside of the body of Christ. But as a good brother once reminded me, sometimes as Christians we treat each other like we're enemies. And we need to love one another, even if we're treated as enemies. Dear brothers and sisters, we know that we need to grow in this love. Because the church is often easily divided. If you recall the context of this passage, beginning of chapter 4, it talks about the unity of the body of Christ. And 
The Apostle Paul exhorts the church, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to re- maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Maintaining the unity by bearing with one another in love. We need to grow in that love and be built up in that love because we know all too well the sadness of the church which is divided. Even of a local church where a brother or sister leaves the church with an unresolved conflict, an unresolved personal conflict. Having pastored for 20 years, the greatest burden I bear as a pastor is when members leave because there's an unresolved conflict. They simply silently slip away and join another church rather than bearing with one another in love. Or even as we read further in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, this exhortation of the Spirit, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgives you. Our Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Many years ago, I read the book, The Peacemaker, by Ken Sandy. The Peacemaker, a biblical guide for resolving personal conflict. A great book. I remember when he talked about this Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he referred to Christians who all too often will say, I forgive you, but I'm going to join another church. I forgive you, but I don't want to work with you or interact with you. And Ken Sandy in his book, paraphrase, he says, imagine if God forgot, gave us that way. I forgive you, but I don't want you in my church. I forgive you, but I don't want to interact with you. We need to bear with one another in love, forgiving one another. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the great testimonies of love, of forgiving love. Probably many of you have heard or read the testimony of Corrie ten Boom, who met the German soldier, met him in a church building, a German soldier who had humiliated Corrie and her sister when they were naked in the concentration camps. By the grace of God, she forgave him. For the story I heard just two weeks ago, a dear sister in Rwanda, who had gone through the massacre several years ago, and she forgave her neighbor who had massacred her husband, and she permitted her daughter to marry his son. Amazing, wonderful testimonies of forgiving love. But rather than being wowed by the incredible examples of forgiving love, we need to live it ourselves in the smaller but very significant relationships of the local church. Here's a dear couple I know in our church. I wronged them. I wronged them on their wedding night. They forgave me. And just recently, it's been at least eight years now, a husband wrote me an email of encouragement when I was going through a difficult moment. The body of Christ being built up in love. 
Christ gives to the church, teacher, so that we may be built up in love. But how? How can we be built up in love? How can we be built up in love? Even how can this church here be built up in love and be knowing to bear with one another in greater love? Well, there's many answers we can give to that question, but I'd like to draw your attention to what is highlighted in this text. To highlight the ordained means, the way that God wants to, the way that Christ has given, the tool he has given to build us up in love for one another. His tool is teaching. He teaches. Through oral instruction, Christ wants to build his church up in love. I hope it's clear to all of us that this passage gives a priority to teaching, instruction, preaching. It talks in verse 11 about the fact that the Lord gives apostles, sorry, that was a Frenchism. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, and teachers, all teaching offices, to equip the saints, works of mercy, your ministry, building up the body of Christ through instruction, but also by their example that we may attain the unity of, unity of the faith or in doctrine, unity of Christian teaching and doctrine, to oppose and warn against false heretical teaching, and then again to speak the truth in love. That isn't teaching again. If the whole text is about teaching. And through teaching, Christ seeks to build us up in love. Now, I have a personal passion for teaching. I've done a lot of reading and thinking about it in terms of its methods, didactics, about its theory, pedagogy. There are many different methods and approaches that we can have, instruction, mentoring, learning by doing, teamwork, group projects, seminars, field trips. Recently, I learned about social constructivism, cognitivism, and explicit instruction, all different approaches for teaching. But the one form of teaching which is most often criticized and put aside is the lecture, the monologue. When the teacher, as you know, some of the students, when the teacher's in front of the class and instructs for a half an hour, an hour, and you need to take notes, or when the preacher is in front of the church and the congregation needs to listen, the instructor is active, the rest are passive, they say. They're not learning. It's not a good teaching method. Now, I would dare say that the popularity of podcasts, videos, TED Talks demonstrates that good instruction can be effective. And we all know that listening is active. Listening, active listening, is an active participation. It's hard work, in fact. You can do it by taking notes. You can do it by looking in your Bible for the text. You can do it also by discussing the passage of sermon afterwards. Or if you will, I'll give you this clue. Active listening is done by repeating every word I say to you. By repeating in your mind, Every word the preacher speaks, you'll be actively listening and learning. But we emphasize preaching and teaching because it's the ordained means that God has given to us. This is the means which God has chosen to build up his church. The foolishness of God, which is wisdom for us. I love the text in 1 Corinthians 10, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21 depending on your translation, where it says, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. Through the folly of preaching, not just the message which is preached, but the actual preaching methodology. God saves. The hearing of the word produces faith. It's exactly what we saw in the text read in Nehemiah about Ezra, the scribe, reading the scriptures before the assembly. Men, women, and children. He read the book, the law of God, 
He gave it sense, interpreting so that the people could understand. What Ezra did was inspired by what Moses had instructed the Levites to read the scriptures regularly. Ezra's practice became the practice in the church synagogues. What was done in the synagogues became the practice of the early church, that they would have to give themselves to the public reading of scriptures, exhortation, and teaching. And this century's practice has continued through the years, through the centuries, even today. And yet there are those who oppose. How can preaching, this monologue of instruction, build up believers, some say? How can preaching build up believers in love? We don't need instruction. We need examples. We need action. We need service projects. Put aside this all-talk sermon and let us go out into the world and love and serve. And so churches neglect the teaching and preaching. And we certainly do need a faith which is active, faith working through love. But this faith that is active in love is born, fed, nourished by the hearing of the word preached. How can faithful preaching motivate us to love? Well, faithful preaching teaches the word of God's love. The word of truth about God's love for us. We're in the epistle to the Ephesians. You know this passage, this letter well, I hope. It begins in chapter 1 verse with the love of God. Chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his children. Chapter 2, how we are saved by grace through faith. And it reminds us again, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive again with Christ. Because of his great love. And that prayer in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. And Paul prays that, that we, the church, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And because of this great love of God for which we also pray, he exhorts the church, chapter 4, verse 2, bear with one another in love. Or again, chapter 5, verse 2, walk in love. Why? As Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We teach the gospel of truth. And the truth is about God's love for us. I encourage you to know, if you don't know, to memorize this text, also the children. 1 John 4, verse 19. We love because God first loved us. We start with God's love. And therefore we love. And it is God's love that calls us. God's love that convicts us. His love that constrains us, commands us, encourages us to love one another, to bear with one another in love. To love one another more and more and more. If we are to teach God's love, it needs to be taught in love, lovingly. Look for a third lesson here in verse 15, where we are called to speak the truth in love. You may have heard the story of a child 
during the worship service, nudged his mother and said, Mom, why is the pastor so angry? And she said to him quietly, he's reminding us that God loves us. We need to speak the truth lovingly in love. Speaking the truth in love, the apostle reminds us, truth and love, love and truth. And may the pastor never divide or separate what God has brought together. Love rejoices in the truth. Robert Murray McChain says it well in his text in verse 14 and 15. I quote, Truth without love lacks its proper environment and loses its persuasive power. Love without truth forfeits its identity, degenerating into excessive sentimentalism. Sentiments without solidity, feeling without principle. We need to speak the truth, preach the truth in love. That's a challenge for all of us to hold these two together, also for pastors and teachers. We often like to emphasize the importance of truth, but then we're weak on love. Others in reaction want to go more to God's love, and they begin to neglect, even deny the truth. And so we come back and want to trumpet the truth of God. Sometimes we neglect to love those who are blind or lost. And we treat them not as brothers and sisters, but as enemies. To grow in love and to teach in love requires a gift of the Spirit to work in our hearts. By God's grace, he's worked truth and love in me more and more over the years because of my networking. I'm not talking about social networking and Facebook. I do have a Facebook account, but I'm talking about real-life, 3D, in-the-flesh networking. As I interact with evangelical brothers and sisters, as I interact with Catholics in Quebec City, as I interact with theologians at the university, liberal theologians, as I interact with even Muslims, as I interact with them, I seek to reach them and get to know them, interact with them, several reasons, but one of them is simply looking for an opportunity to share with them a truth of God's grace, the truth of reformed grace, sovereign grace. And this networking has taught me has made me more solid and more soft, or softer. It's made me more solid. After speaking with Catholics and Muslims, who I do believe they, it's not just works righteousness, but their ritualism, I come away and I give thanks to God for his grace by which he saves us. That we are declared righteous in the face of God because of his love for us in Christ Jesus that we receive by faith. As I interact with my brothers and sisters, evangelicals often understand being saved by faith alone. I often come away from those discussions understanding that their theology is not deep, not well-developed, not balanced. And so I return again to the richness of Reformed theology and give praise to God for this summary, faithful summary of the biblical truth. God is making me more solid. But he also makes me softer. Softer with compassion for the brother and sisters, softer for those who do not yet know Christ. Softer for those who are saved and yet are weak, have blind spots in their theology, in their practice. Softer for those who are not saved, as my heart is filled with sympathy and a longing that they would indeed come to saving faith. Learning to speak 
the truth in love. And therefore Christ gives to the church pastors and teachers. Just to consider this gift of God, brothers and sisters, that this great calling of teaching so that we might grow in love, this great gift of teaching the truth in love so that we may be built up in love for one another, Christ has committed this work to men. Frail, weak, sinful men. It's the wisdom of God that he would commit the care of his cherished church to pastors and teachers with the help and the work of the elders. As Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Our text refers in verse 11 to the gift of pastors, preachers, shepherds, and also teachers. There's a bit of an exegetical question here. The ESV, if you follow it, refers to the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. There's no article before the word teachers. And exegetes will say, well, are they referring to the same person, pastors and teachers, or are there two different persons? Most will understand that there's a distinction between the two, and yet they are intimately connected. And what exegetes tell us from this text, we also understand from practice. Good pastors are teachers. Good teachers, good theologians are also pastors. We desire a pastoral instruction as well as instructive pastoring. And this is the gift of Christ to the church. And you're very well, you're very well aware that there's usually a lack of pastors, a lack of teachers for your own denomination, for the church of Jesus Christ. The words of Jesus still ring true, don't they? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And so we seek to prepare men to serve, even as I do and seek to do at Fahel. The Church of Quebec, there are many pastors, several pastors for which we give thanks to God. But there are several foreigners like myself who come into Quebec and speak French with an accent. They're gracious to listen. But we need more men from Quebec to serve. Some of our pastors are becoming aged, issues of health, nearing retirement. We need God to raise up more young men from Quebec to serve the church as pastors, teachers, elders. And so therefore we're thankful for young men like Pierre, David, Giovanni, Samuel. We pray that God would use them to shepherd his flock. Because the shepherds, pastors, and teachers, they are gifts. Gifts of God's grace. They are a grace of God to us. Our text, verse 7, begins with a grace. But the word grace, grace was given to each of us. Each gift is a grace of Christ to the church. Also teachers, they are a gift of his grace to us. Pastors and teachers are a grace, a gift of God's grace to build up his church so that we know God's love and that we might love one another. A gift of grace to build us up in love by teaching lovingly. And this is what our Lord promises to give. 
our risen, ascended, victorious Lord Jesus Christ promises to give to the church pastors and teachers. When the Lord makes a promise, how do we respond? We pray to lay hold of that promise. We pray to lay hold of the promise. Not that we need to remind the Lord of his promise as if he could forget. No, we pray in order to prepare ourselves to receive the gift. We pray in order to humbly receive the gift of what the Lord promises to give. To humbly desire and receive pastors and teachers. To humbly desire and receive their teaching. And the Lord promises that the humble hearing of the word of truth will produce faith in us. And that faith, this faith will be active in love one for another. Amen.